No joke today. <laughs> Always brings a cheer. Public service announcement. Today's sermon is on a controversial and highly emotion-filled topic. Please do your best to remain calm. Listen to what is being said and in what manner it's being said. Keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times and remain seated until the sermon comes to a full and complete stop. Thank you very much. Two or three weeks ago, I was preaching on 1 Timothy 1. And as I went through verses 9 and 10, it listed several things which were in the category of the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners. Could someone grab me a, a little cup of water, please? Uh, my, uh, my communion cracker is <clears throat> revenging in my throat here. One of the several things listed in that list that I went over last week was in our ESV Bibles, enslavers. And I made a comment, a side note really, about how on earth people who held themselves to be Christians could for centuries be slave owners and somehow not connect that verse with their own behavior. There was something about that comment when I made that. As soon as I made that, there was something that just kind of nagged at the back of my mind. And afterwards, I, I just kept thinking about it. There was something there. Thank you so much. There was something that was just not quite right. And so I went back and did a little checking. I went and I dug in and I tried to find out what it was that was poking me in the brain about my comment on that and what this scripture says. If you go back to that passage in your King James Bible, it doesn't say enslaver. It uses the term man-stealers. I checked with the Wycliffe Bible, which is the only other English Bible that was widely available back during the times when slavery was often practiced. And it doesn't even mention that verse. That verse isn't there. It skips it, or a huge portion of it, and it has it as a footnote which usually denotes that the translator was doubtful about the accuracy of or the reality that that was in the original context. I looked it up in my Greek Bible, and the literal translation is man-stealers. Looking up the passage in my oldest commentaries, I found that most of them restricted their comments to the actual taking or trading in slaves is what they spoke of. Many people of centuries past interpreted this passage not as enslavers, but as kidnappers. Matthew Henry, my only source that I have in my library for 17th century Christian understanding, he did not interpret it. 
but he left it as man-stealers, and he merely decried the practice as violating the ninth commandment. Now, he wrote in England where slavery was never recognized as legal. There was never a law that said you could have a slave in England. However, the slave trade outside of England by English merchants absolutely thrived. They were top of the game in that field. And by the way, um, the song that we last sang, Amazing Grace, if you're not familiar, that song was written, uh, I think his name's John Newton, was an ex-slave trader. But we'll get back to uh, how things changed in a minute. Today we're going to go through a passage which deals with the aspect of slavery without actually dealing with the aspect of slavery, along with some other texts on the topic that we're going to go over. But I want to see what they do and don't say. Now, when I told my wife what I was going to be talking about today, she was like, yeah, because so many Christians today are slave owners. They need this told to them. And I said, what I'm talking about is the reliability of Scripture, the correctness or incorrectness, as what some people may say of Scripture, and how people will denigrate the Bible and say it says things that it doesn't actually say. Turn with me if you would. We're going to read an entire book of the Bible today. Don't worry, it's the shortest one there. Or the second shortest. The book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough to in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me 
on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, or in some of your translations, if you're not reading this, it may say slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the letter that Paul writes to a fellow Christian whose slave has run away. Despite what some people have said about the Bible, it does not condone slavery. It is, however, largely silent on a few aspects of it. We can determine what God's viewpoint on this is, though. It's okay, don't worry. It happens to all of us. We can determine what God's viewpoint is on this, even though some things are left fairly silent. It isn't actually that hard. It's almost always something we can determine from Scripture. But first we need to discuss what the term slavery actually means. That term is almost always oversimplified. It is a single word that is used to cover a large scope of things. I don't know if it's, if it's glossed over and just not explained very well for political reasons or due to largely ignorant audiences or short attention spans or fiery emotions. I don't know. But usually there isn't an opportunity for any in-depth discussion. And so it just comes down to the basic fundamentals of slavery, bad. But what does the term actually mean? What do people think when they hear the word? We seem to only be able to think of it in terms of what is thought of in the 18th and 19th century chattel slavery that was going on in the U.S. and many other places. One race dominating over another outright owning other people. 
Someone who was born into slavery and who will always be owned by another person unless somehow they were to be set free. But historically, that is only a small percentage of what has been used as a slave throughout history. Most people who were slaves historically were one of two things. One, they were a conquered society, usually of the same race as the people who conquered them, being hauled off as prizes of war to be used as labor. Or two, people who sold themselves into slavery, usually called bond servants in your more modern translations of the Bible. And this was for a set time period in order to pay a debt or perhaps simply because they were destitute and starving to death, so they sold themselves in as this type of servant to avoid starvation. This latter one, the bond servant, was always considered to be acceptable throughout history. And even in some cases, it was considered as beneficial to people who would otherwise have simply perished. There was nothing else they could do but starve. This bondservant aspect of slavery was widely practiced in near modern times. And tens of thousands of Europeans came to the American colonies under what we referred to as indentured servitude. Some historians, such as Richard Hofstadter, believe that it was about half the Europeans who came to the colonies came under indentured servitude. They sold themselves for a time in order to get here. Under this system, people with a debt or simply no means to pay for their travel, they signed a contract where they received a payment or just their transport, which included food and clothing. And they were then held to forced labor for a set time. They could not get out of this time of servitude under penalty of law unless they could somehow pay back their own debt. Indentured servants could be physically punished. And yes, by that I mean whipped for misbehavior. They, or rather their contract, could be sold to other masters. And they had zero control over this. If I owned your contract for indentured servitude, I could sell it and therefore you to someone else. You may be thinking that this type of thing is forbidden now and that none of us would ever condone anything like that. Indentured servitude, a type of slavery, no one would condone that today. Well, let's see. Someone who's poor signs a contract for a set amount of money that they will receive. In return, they have to do forced labor which is not explained to them what it will be, anything about what it will be ahead of time. 
They can be worked in conditions that will kill them. They can be forced to go into situations that will kill them. And if you try to leave before your contract is up, you will go to prison. And then you have to serve your contract out. We wouldn't condone anything like that, would we? Kevin, do we condone anything like that these days? <laughs> Everyone in here who spent time in the military was under a contract just like that. And yes, they could send you to your death. So we look back and we snub our noses at what people used to do before. We don't think about how maybe we still do something really, really close to that. In the Old Testament, when someone would sell themselves into slavery, it had rules, limitations, and most importantly, it had an end date. No one was to be in that situation permanently. In most of the situations in Scripture, it was more a type of working off a debt kind of thing. In our modern society where people attempt to castigate the Bible as endorsing slavery, they are mostly ill-informed and they're infusing the modern ideals of what is acceptable backwards into cultures which were so different from our own that they really cannot be honestly compared. The bondservants of the New Testament are probably somewhere in between what we knew of as an indentured servant and chattel slavery, the owning outright of another person. They had very few rights under Roman law, and they could be killed for running away. Their servitude was often longer than the seven years of a typical indenturement that we know from our history. But it usually did have an expiration. So why does the Bible not only fail to abolish it, along with outright slavery, but seems to endorse it. Enemies of Christianity will often cite passages such as Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I may have gotten off the, uh, the script up there, but we're on page 4. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. People will look at that and they'll say, ah, oh, see, the Bible tells slaves that they have to behave. Even the entire book of Philemon that we just read doesn't state that this should be forbidden as something Christians can do. Why didn't Paul command Philemon to release Onesimus? Why didn't he just say, this is wrong, stop doing it, release him? Is it okay to have a slave and be a Christian? 
I think we have to look at what Paul did tell Philemon. First off, look at the way he addresses him. He doesn't try to shame him for having this practice. He thanks God for him and the love that he has shown to other people, particularly the saints, as in fellow Christians. He then, in verse 6, says that he prays that Philemon's sharing of his faith will become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He doesn't mean the sharing of his faith as in going out witnessing and saying, hey, let me tell you about Christ. He's talking about koinonia, the fellowship in Christ that we have with all of our fellow Christians, the way that we are supposed to look at one another as brothers and sisters, including someone you might happen to own as a slave. In essence, he's enlightening Philemon to the fact that his love for the saints now expands to include this man who was his slave. Not only was this man his slave, but this man had stolen from him, ran away, and then miraculously, after running away, he goes to Rome, this runaway slave, and somehow runs into Paul, the very person who brought Philemon to Christ, this runaway slave runs into. Whether that was the slave's intention or it was just God's providence bringing the two together in a city of a couple of million people. He now meets Paul and he himself comes to know Christ. Comes to know what it is that they're talking about. In verse 8, Paul makes it clear that he, Paul, he very well could command Philemon to do what was right. Although he only hints at what that is. He's leaving it to Philemon to come to this conclusion on his own. Instead, he says that he preferred to appeal to him to make the decision himself, not under compulsion. In his appeal, Paul makes it clear that he loves Philemon as a brother. And he's refreshed by Philemon's own love that he has displayed for other people. In verse 14, Paul specifically says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent, meaning keeping Onesimus with him as a helper, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Paul then explains how it is possible, maybe, that this is why God allowed this strange sequence of events to take place. For Philemon's own benefit, and for the benefit of all in the long run, he and Onesimus, the formerly runaway, unruly slave, might now come back as a brother to Philemon 
and as Paul's fellow son in Christ. Paul then closes his plea for Onesimus' sake by imploring Philemon to think of his former slave as he would consider Paul himself. He wants Philemon to fill in the blanks as he comes to the conclusion in his own mind as to how he, as a Christian, ought to be treating this other person who is technically still indebted to him as a bondservant, a slave. Paul knows that it's far better for him to be convinced of his wrongdoing and to desire to do what's right in the eyes of God than to force him by compulsion, you must do this even if you don't want to. People don't respond well that way. They may submit. They may do what they must. But it's never a heart change. Not not as it is as it's best. If you want evidence of this, the difference between someone acting under compulsion or someone coming to a conclusion on themselves, take someone who's a former smoker. Okay? Take someone like that into mind. You probably know people in both these categories. You've got, on one side, you've got their work says they can't smoke, the the restaurants say they can't smoke, the places say they can't smoke, their insurance says they can't smoke, they're compelled to give up smoking. And so they quit smoking. But you know what? They grumble about it every chance they get. They talk about how these people... Now you take someone who is convinced through persuasion that smoking is terrible for them. And they willingly, knowingly, give it up because they've come to the conclusion that it's the right thing to do. They will become a zealot for anti-smoking. They'll be telling everyone they know how they need to quit smoking too and how it's so much better and how they feel better and how things are so much better and all this money I've got. The two are totally, the end result may be technically the same, but the heart change in the one versus the stubborn heart of the other is an amazing difference. You probably know people in both categories. In other places in Scripture, Paul does virtually the same thing for a wider audience. He teaches them that this is no longer the way Christians ought to be living. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This passage is repeated almost exactly the same in another book of Paul's. And there are others where Paul is a bit more blunt, you know, for the slow learners. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Masters, do the same to them, bondservants, and stop your threatening. 
knowing that He who is both their Master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with Him. Paul had just told the bondservants to treat their masters as they would treat Christ. And then he turns around and tells the masters, you do the same for them. And he isn't limiting it to if they're a Christian or not. He had specifically pointed out, he said to the bondservants, you don't just serve your master well if he's a Christian, you serve him well as an example of Christ. And you treat him as you would treat Christ. And then he turns around and he says to the masters, he says, you do the same. You treat them as though they are Christ. Now how can you lord something over someone and force them to be your slave if you are looking at them as though they are Jesus Christ. This was the one Paul put in there in case people just weren't catching on. I've lost my place. It kind of negates the whole you better do what I say or else type of thinking. In the end, while Paul nor any of the other apostles forbid Christians to own slaves of any variety. It wasn't put in there. It wasn't put in that that this was something you may not do. It created a situation in which the institution would be rendered null and void. But only if people are willing to listen and apply the Word of God to their hearts. And we know from history there's a whole lot of people who claim the name of Christ and ignore a whole lot that's written. And that's the same way in every issue of morality. You can order them all day long, but if they won't listen, it doesn't do much good. In the aftermath, there were, of course, people in the world where slavery was the norm, and not the exception. This slavery is throughout history, throughout cultures. Eventually, not just one, but two Christian popes looked at what Scripture said and declared that no Christian may have a slave and call themselves by the name of Christ. But did you hear what I said? One pope declared it, And then a while later, another pope had to declare it. Why do you think that was? Because when you force people into something, they don't change their heart. And so it had to be declared not once, but twice. And then slowly but surely, every nation that called itself Christian decried the practice as barbaric and banned it and outlawed it. If you haven't watched the movie, Amazing Grace, I encourage you to do so. It's not just about the song, but it's about uh, the man who led the fight in English Parliament to outlaw the slave trade. 
This was done and led by Christian people throughout the world, and it took centuries of pushing for it, but eventually they succeeded in every Christian nation on the earth. Because they looked at what Scripture said, and they said there's no way we can condone this and call ourselves Christians. I firmly believe that the best solution for all of mankind's evils is for one person to express the love of Christ to others and bring them to a part, a place, where they know and love God enough to change their heart in relation to their fellow man and love their neighbor as themselves. That doesn't always work. And a society has to force those who are bent on evil to stop doing it. But whenever we have the opportunity, whenever we have the opportunity, we should be trying to lead people away from evil and towards God by demonstrating His love for them in how we show love to them. Paul could have started off this letter by saying, what's wrong with you? Why would you think this is okay? Are you stupid? He starts off this letter expressing his love for Philemon and then tried to convince him to change. He didn't yell at him for being evil and selfish as an unloving person who needed to get right or go to hell. I only pray that in all of the situations that we do actually face, because last I checked, none of you were slaveholders, right? I mean, there's not somebody's got somebody chained in their basement, right? There are situations that we do face. And things where we are confronted with Christians who aren't following things as what Scripture leads us. And we need to be witnessing to those outside of Christ as well that we that I love them regardless of where they are right now and that God loves them and we desire for them to have their hearts change, whatever the topic is. There's a whole lot of topics out there right now where people can look in Scripture and see what God says but they're choosing to ignore that and declare other things right and other things wrong. And we can choose to do one of two things. We can scream at them about how evil and terrible they are and they shouldn't be able to call themselves a Christian. Or we can tell them that God loves you and I love you. And we both want you to spend eternity in heaven and lead them to where they decide that the things that they have been doing or are participating in just aren't compatible 
with the name of Christ. Please stand with me as we pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you. Guard our hearts, Lord. Protect us from our own anger. Help us to love others and show them your love so that they too would just decide to give up all the things in their lives that are not compatible with you and give themselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have not accepted Christ for yourself, I invite you to do so. As the praise team leads us, you can come forward at any time.